we're going to be talking about a relationship between Christians and the law, right? So uh, this is part of our series on Christian ethics. And part of Christian ethics is we use the Bible to inform ethical decisions, right? Now, this gets kind of complicated because if you look at some of the Old Testament laws, like you shall not wear clothing with mixed fabrics, right? That's forbidden in the Old Testament. And so it kind of puts us in a very awkward position when we tell people, well, I can do that. Well, it says in the Old Testament you can't, right? And so uh, there's uh, an accusation that Christians pick and choose what laws they obey, right? Uh, when we talk about the issue of homosexuality, and you might point to some places in Leviticus that says that if a man lies with another man as a man lies with a woman, that is an abomination. They'll say, well, a few verses later, you can't sow two kinds of seed in the same field. So why do you obey one law but not the other, right? Which is a fair point. And so what we're trying to do right now is to show you um, what is our obligation to the Old Testament law, and then what is the function of Old Testament law? Like, how can it help bless us and guide us and teach us and instruct us? So we talked uh, yesterday, or I'm sorry, two weeks ago, because you know, we had a snow day right, last, last weekend, uh, about the Old Testament law was part of a covenant that God made with the people of Israel, right? So he redeemed them uh, from Egypt uh, because of his covenant that he made with Abraham. And then he was going to plant them in the promised land. You guys recognize this? Right. I even got you know, Sardinia and, and uh, Sicily in here, too. So, you want a sticker, don't you? Yeah, I should. I should get one. So, we, uh, so this is where Jerusalem is. This is where the nation of Israel, this is the promised land. And, and notice, to get to Africa, Europe, and Asia, to connect the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean, it's really in the geographical center of the world. Um, it's kind of a pass-through place. All the major highways and waterways are close to that. And so what God wanted to do was he was going to make a kingdom of priests here, to mediate the knowledge of Yahweh to the entire world so that when people pass through Israel, they're going to notice that they're very different, right? So what would be some, some differences that if you were to walk through Israel and spend a week there, you would notice? Diet. The diet, right? Like there are certain things that they did not eat, right? What would be some other things? No working on Sunday. No working on Sunday, right? They would just... Huh? Yeah, they, they took a Sabbath day. Um, yeah, good fix, right? <laughs> so technically Saturday, Friday night to Saturday evening. Um, yeah, so a part of that was to have them be a different people, right? And so he made a covenant with them, which was kind of a, a national covenant. Uh, we call it the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, this also goes by the term uh, the Old Covenant that was forged with Israel on Mount Sinai. So one of the questions that we have, um, well, I guess a few other things too. Now, this was a covenant made with the nation of Israel. And if they disobeyed the covenant, what would happen? Invasion. There would be invasions, plagues, famine, right? If they obeyed, what would happen? Prosperity. 
yeah, there'd be some form of prosperity. So the covenant was always in place, right? It's just are going to get the good or the bad end of it. That was dependent on your behavior. So the behavior wasn't essential to making the covenant. That was something that God graciously gave to them because of the promise to Abraham. But the blessings and curses were determined by their adherence to the covenant. Okay? So that was for the nation of Israel. So the question that we have is, is the Mosaic covenant um, still in effect? And if not, to what laws are we bound by God? Right? So what do you think? Do you guys think the Mosaic, are we still under the Mosaic covenant? Okay? So why do we say that? That's the correct answer, but why? We now have Jesus. We now have Jesus, right? Yeah, maybe elaborate on that a little bit. He said he came to fulfill the law. He came to fulfill the law, right? Yeah, and you look at the Mosaic Covenant, um, what are some things that we don't do anymore? And we, we talked about eating different food. What else? We have fabric, two kinds of material. Yeah, we have the freedom to wear two kinds of materials. Yeah, what are some other things that we don't do anymore, that the Israelites did? We don't offer sacrifices. We don't offer sacrifices, which is a pretty major difference. Agree? Anything else? Saturday Sabbath. Yeah, no longer a Saturday Sabbath. And so, um, so what? So clearly, we're not under it right now. All Christian theologians would uh, agree with that. They would also agree that there's laws that we don't keep anymore, like the sacrificial system. And so this has caused uh, many people to kind of reflect on what do we do with the Old Testament. And probably the most popular way of dealing with the Old Testament, you guys might have heard this, right, is there's a tripart division of the law. You've got the ceremonial, right, the civic, and the moral, right? So what would be an example of a ceremonial law? The sacrifices yeah, that'd be yeah, the sacrifices, <coughs> the priesthood, a lot of the procedures for the high holy days. You know, what would be an example of maybe the civic law? Not looking inside. Yeah, and that would be more maybe more ceremonial, but civic. Restitution after that. Restitution, yeah. Cities of refuge. Um, so there are laws that Clearly, like, we don't have cities of refuge here. Do you guys know what I mean by cities of refuge? If you accidentally kill somebody, if you go to a city of refuge, they can't, the family that wants to have support can't kill you as long as you remain there. So basically, people put themselves under house arrest. So we don't have a system of cities of refuge anymore. And then you'd have, like, a moral law. What would be an example of that? Death penalty for adultery or stoning your children for disobeying. Yeah, and that would be more civic because that's done with punishment. Okay. But, like, a moral law is thou shalt not Lie. Lie. Kill. Do you know what I'm saying? So there's certain ethical commands that are there. And so the reasoning is um, we're no longer the nation of Israel, so we can just kind of wipe out the civic law. Christ died, or since he's ultimate sacrifice for a priest, so he can wipe out the ceremonial law. And so what's left is the moral law. And so if you can discern what's a moral law that's different from the civic and ceremonial, uh, Christians are obligated to that. Okay? So what do you guys think about that? that view. Well, it puts it like up to you instead of like what God says. 
Okay. In, in, in what way? I, I think you're onto something. Like, you're deciding what's moral, what's civic, and what's ceremonial, and you're not really, like, you know, taking God's word as it is. You're trying to put your own interpretation into it. Okay. There, and I think you bring up a very key point, Donna, that, um, yeah, how do, you se- how do you separate these guys? Right? So it does allow for some subjectivity. Any other thoughts? I think the Sabbath is a good example where it sort of fits into multiple categories. Yeah. It's ceremonial, but it also has some pretty heavy civic implications, too. We have some space up here, by the way. Okay. We want to make the long walk up front. Um, Yeah, so there's a lot of laws, like even obeying your parents, right? Knowing how important the family was to Israel, that's almost a civic law. Um, So yeah, there's a lot of bleed. Other thoughts on what the problem with the tripart division of the law? Nothing within scripture indicates that there is a tripart division. Yeah. Yeah, I think you could probably make a a better case for it dividing the law ten ways, like the Ten Commandments. So the three is kind of arbitrary. Again, I want to show you um, some passages here. Uh, we're on page five, uh, Galatians five three. Um, Steve. Well, do you, anybody have it in front of you? Do you want to read that? Five three. <coughs> Galatians five three. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Okay. So he's talking about one of the key parts of the law is circumcision, and that's part of the law that was given to Abraham and his children, to the children of Israel. And he's saying if if you you know these Judaizers are saying that believers must be circumcised. And he says, if you're saying you must be circumcised, then you have to keep every part of the law, not just one. So he's basically likened the law to like one unit. And this is also very clear in James 2.10. Joe, do you have that in front of you? I can look it up here. Yeah, James 2.10. And I think this is even more clear. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Okay. So what's the argument he's making there? Um, if you live by the law, you'll you'll die to it. Yeah, and and I think this like, That's why, why is it a big deal if you break one commandment? It's still a sin. And why is sin a big deal? Because God is holy. Because God is holy, right? What makes sin sin is it's a violation of God's law. It's a rebellion against God. It's who you're rebelling against, right? Whether it's this law or this law or this law, that makes sin um, as egregious as it is, right? So that's, so what he's saying is it's like, you know, if I were to just like break this part of the window here, right? The whole window is broken, right? You have to replace the whole thing. And so when he's saying, like, you break one part of law, I mean, you violate the whole law. The law was never subdivided, right? It was all one unit. So this um, kind of brings up the whole issue. If the law is all one unit, are we still obligated to it? And we're going to find some passages that show otherwise. 
Um, does somebody want to get Matthew 5.17? Ashton, you got that? Okay, so I think that's a great um, passage where he is the fulfillment of the law. Can you think of maybe some laws that Jesus perhaps fulfilled? The sacrificial law. The sacrificial law. Like, remember when John looks at Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Lamb of God. And what, would that, what does that bring to mind? Lambs, yeah, for the Passover, right? Mm-hmm. So he's the fulfillment of the Passover law. Uh, he complete, perfectly obeyed the law. He is the fulfillment <coughs> of the law. He's basically what the law points to. This point, I think, is made a little bit later in uh, Romans 10.4. Volunteer to read that? For Christ yeah. is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Okay. So he's the end of the law. He's the objective of the law. Okay. So let's say Congress passed a law to build a large dam. After much engineering and construction, they finished the dam. At that point in time, what happens to the law? It's been fulfilled. Yeah, it's been fulfilled, right? It's a matter of historical record. So it did what it was supposed to do. Okay? So the Old Covenant law did what it was supposed to do, which is 2.2, Christ. So let's look at Galatians 3.13. And remember, if you break the Old Covenant, what do you get? You get curses, right? And you get blessed if you obey. So with that in mind, have a volunteer to read Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Okay. So who's being cursed here? In this passage, who's being cursed? Christ. 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 Okay. So remember how when you violate the law, the nation of Israel gets cursed, right? When they violate that. But what Jesus did was he took the entire curse of the law upon himself. So in that sense, he fulfilled the law. Uh, then Hebrews 9.15. Uh, volunteer to read that. Tanner, you want to get that for me? <coughs> Hebrews 9.15. Uh, therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Mm-hmm. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Okay, and then those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance, right? So according to this passage, which covenant are we currently under? The new covenant, the new covenant which is different from the old covenant. So according to this verse, what blessing does the new covenant offer which the first one did not? Exactly. The promise of eternal inheritance. Right? The the old covenant never offered that. Christ offers a new and better covenant. We don't have the sacrificial system. We have Christ. We don't have the Levitical priesthood. We have Christ, a perfect high priest. We don't have curses under the law because Christ was cursed for us. We automatically receive a blessing. We receive a new heart. It's a new and better covenant. And finally, who were the recipients of the Mosaic Law? What's the answer to that one? 
No, the old covenant law. Israel was, right? So was it for us? No, it was for a different group of people. So from these texts, it's quite clear that we are not in any way under the Mosaic covenant. The rules and stipulations of the covenant were for another people in another era, yet there is still some relevance, as we shall see in the next section. So we get into the, so do we just like cut away the Old Testament and say it doesn't really have any value for us. Okay? So we see that the New Testament still speaks highly of the Old Testament. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Somebody from this area want to get it? Julie, you want to get this for me? Sure. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Okay, so to what parts of Scripture does Paul refer to with all Scripture? What's meant by that? Including the Old Testament. It would include the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament. Okay? Now, in his mind, what's the benefit of the Old Testament? To be equipped for good works. Yeah, to be equipped for good works, right? There, there is a real value to it. Okay? Then uh, Romans seven twelve. Leo, you want to get that for me? Romans 7, 12. Okay. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and the righteous and righteous and righteousness and good. Okay. So what does it mean to be holy? Set apart. Yeah, to be set apart, to be distinct, right? And who's the holiest of holies? The big God, right? So what does the term holy signify about the character of the law? It is like God. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, although we are not currently under the Mosaic law, the New Testament law, writers revered the law of God. So now we see that there's also a, we're not under the law, but the law is still highly respected. But we see that there is a new law system, okay? John 14, 15. Jesus states, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In doing so, it makes it clear that our love for him must be expressed through obedience. And this prompts the all-important question, what commandments must we obey? Well, as previously stated, we're not bound by the Mosaic Covenant, but are constrained by other laws. Okay, so consider the following passages, okay? First one, Galatians 6, 2. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. <coughs> so what does it mean to fulfill the law and what does this suggest about our obligation to it? Like what does this compel Christians to do? Love. Love, right? So notice he calls the law of Christ. <coughs> so Christians are under Christ's law. Okay, and in this case it's to bear one another's burdens. Uh, James 2, 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. So what's the essence of this law? I have a little cross-reference for you in Leviticus. I mean, what's the essence of the law? It's not a trick question. Love others like you love yourself. Yeah, to love others like to love yourself. And that's actually repeated from the 
uh, Old Testament. So what do you suppose are the crucial differences between the law of Moses and the law of Christ? Consider the origins. What do you think some of the big differences are? Want to give it a shot, Becky? Differences between the law of Moses and the law of Christ. Yeah, what accounts for the differences? It's a people who are joined not by birth or mm-hmm. nationality, ethnicity, mm-hmm. and under a government, but it's a people who are uh, reborn into this new people from within. And yeah. so the emphasis is on what your heart disposition is that leads to mm-hmm. outward actions of obedience. Yeah. I mean, you look at the kind of the, the original mission of Israel, right, was that people would come to a nation and meet the people of God and get to know God that way, right? But in the New Covenant, there is no, for a time at least, there is no nation. And so the people of God have to go out among the nations, right? So there's a, there is a different mission. And so you look at, let's say, um, eating kosher, uh, not eating bacon, um, no meat and cheese, no, no shellfish. Uh, part of that was if Israel was encouraged to always eat with the nations, with the Gentiles, that's where you had your social interaction. That is what um, created social engagements and friendships. There was almost a danger that they would be corrupted by their so close association with their neighbors. So, but with the new covenant, okay, one thing that we have is we have the Holy Spirit, the protection of the Holy Spirit. We have a new mission. God now wants to encourage us to eat with the Gentiles under certain parameters. You're not to eat food, sacrifice to idols, participate in idol worship. Um, but that's part of a mission of, let's say, going out. Um, there is no sacrificial system anymore, right? Because Christ is our perfect sacrifice. You don't have to sacrifice animals because we have a bloodless sacrifice that we remember with <coughs> communion, right? So there's a lot of differences that are reflected of the nations. You're not a, you don't have to compel circumcision anymore, right? Because you know, the, the blessings of being part of the family of God is not transmitted by birthright, <coughs> but by being born again, right? So there's a lot of reasons why these laws are very, are very, are different to a certain extent. Now, if you were to drive across the country, all of the driving laws are pretty similar, aren't they? But there are some differences, like if you were in, um, let's say, Georgia, and this still might be a law in Georgia, and there's a bus in front of you, and the stop sign goes up, you know, school bus, right? Stop sign goes up. Both sides of traffic have to stop. But if you go to New York, and there's a, that stop sign goes out, only one lane has to stop. Now, why do you think that is? There's a lot more traffic. There's a lot more traffic in New York, right? You know, you still drive on the right side of the street, you still have stop signs and all these other things, but that's just one difference that's kind of, contextually driven, okay? 
So when you look at the law of God, you know, the law of the Old Testament was written by who? <coughs> by God, right? The law of Christ was ultimately written by who? By God, right? So it's the same author, and they're connected really by two key commands. So let's look at that Matthew 22, 36 through 40. You guys see that in there? Somebody want to read that for me? Carson, go ahead. Just the Greek, sorry. Oh, okay, go ahead. Okay. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Okay. So notice, the whole law hangs on two commands. So we're going to go through the Ten Commandments. And one is loving the Lord versus loving your neighbor. Okay, And we'll say, yeah, all of them are about loving the Lord. But we're kind of looking at specifically what's the emphasis. Is this the love your neighbor command that it hangs on, or is it, does it hang on to love the Lord? So you shall not worship other gods. No polytheism. What's that? Loving God. Loving God, right? How about graven images? Love God. Swearing, taking the name, Lord's name in vain. Loving God. Loving God. Uh, the Sabbath. <coughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit of, uh, obviously loving God, but, you know, if you had servants, kind of loving your neighbor too, a little bit of both. How about uh, obedience to your parents? Yeah, it's loving your neighbor, but also kind of loving God. And then you get into murder. Loving your neighbor, neighbor, but also a little bit of loving God because the reason why murder is wrong because you're assaulting man made in the image of God, right? Adultery. Yeah, neighbor, theft, lying, coveting, right? So the essence of the law is about either loving the Lord explicitly or loving your neighbor or some combination of both. So the Ten Commandments, the 613 commandments, are really an exposition and an elaboration on all those laws, those two major laws that became ten major laws that expanded to 613 in the context of the covenant community of Israel. Okay? So they're great for that. But then we look at, um, but all of that, okay, all of that is part of the old covenant which has been done away with, right? So when we look at the law of Christ, What we're going to see is that there's a new law in place with some differences. For instance, uh, uh, I have like this little chart here. Do you guys see this right here? And so you kind of have like three time periods, right? You have um, Abraham's family before the Mosaic Law. Then you have the Mosaic Law. And then you have a New Testament restatement. This is what's fascinating. You see that polytheism is forbidden across all ethics. Graven images, all ethics. Swearing across all ethics. The Sabbath, well, Colossians 2.16 nullifies that we don't have to keep the Sabbath. Obedience to parents, all ethics. Murder, adultery, theft, false witness, coveting, across all ethics. So the only law that um, we don't have to keep in the new covenant is the Sabbath command because Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Now, 
Why do we meet on Sunday? Well, Sunday is called the Lord's Day. It's a different day. It's the day of the resurrection. And we are to gather together on the Lord's Day. Um, but it's not the same as the Sabbath observance for the nation of Israel. Okay? So, note, this is kind of the summary. The Old Testament law perfectly applied to the people of Israel who were about to venture into the promised land. It showed them how to worship God and love their neighbors. The law also pointed forward to a future time in which God would change their ability to obey the law through the transforming work of Christ. As Christians, we do not look forward to the manifestation of Christ. Rather, we look back upon his finished work. Thus, as we look at the Old Testament law, we must view it through the lens of Christ. The work of Christ radically did away with the old law and implemented a new law in its stead. We're no longer, we no longer have Levitical priest as a high priest. We're not condemned when we break the law because he was condemned. We can mix and match oxen because we are not impersonating a pagan practice in doing so. Yet for those dissimilarities, the two law systems show a striking resemblance as they have the same lawgiver, which is Christ. Okay? Any questions about that? Is that making sense? I think it kind of simplifies things. Oh, go ahead, Will. I was just um, listening to some teachers about this. Uh -huh. There's this, um, I don't know if you ever read Comfort. Yeah. Um, yeah. And using what Paul said, too, that uh, this law is a school teacher. Mm -hmm. So you look at the Ten Commandments, and mm -hmm. they're like a flashlight uh, to show us God's standards. Mm -hmm. um, the Ten Commandments are also like a... Um, um, a light unto our path, like a flashlight, but also a mirror to mm -hmm. reflect to show us our sin, too. Mm -hmm. So, um, there's still a use for the Ten Commandments, but they're not for our salvation. It's to show and show others that God's standard hasn't changed. Uh, if we love Him, and we have a new heart, we have that true mm -hmm. salvation through Christ. Yeah. Um, but it's this other idea I've heard, too, of antinomianism, mm -hmm. where now we're under grace, so we don't need the law at all. And that's when I think man's idea is to yeah. come in, and mm -hmm. then it changes the definition of love. So yeah. there's that danger. How would you like balance that out? Yeah, I think we are. We're not under the Old Testament law, if that's what you mean. But we, the issue is how do we express our love for God? Right? If you are born again, you love God. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my Commandments. So what are the commandments we're supposed to obey? And um, you look at all of the Ten Commandments, with the exception of the Sabbath, right? Uh, all of those are about loving the Lord and loving your neighbor. I mean, you look at lying, exploits your neighbor's trust, adultery, betrays your, your wife and the, you know, the other woman or man, uh, depending on your gender, I guess. Um, I mean, all of those are expressions of God's love. So we are called to love, and how do we love? We don't, uh, and I think even in the Old Testament, the law was never a means of earning God's forgiveness or earning God's right. That was never the intention of the law. Of the law. It was a means of how do I express my faithfulness and my love towards God? Um, I'm not sure. Am I answering your question? I, I think I've, I've blathered so long I, I've, I've drifted. No, it's just... Yeah, it just seems like there's this movement away um, 
if, as long as we love, then we're okay to kind of have our own laws that make up. Because yeah. God still loves us as long as we have a passion for God. Yeah. Then, but yet the commandments are still there. He wrote them with his fingers yeah. pretty much. You know, yeah, so, so it's like, how do you love God? Does he say, mm -hmm. worship me with passion? <coughs> right? That's what he wants. Uh, well, no, uh, he wants you to emulate his character and his holiness and to be like him and to be faithful to him and to love his people. And that's how he wants to be loved. And so um, obedience is God's love language. Um, and should you have passion? You bet. But, yeah, that's, that's kind of the greater law. And so you look at the, like the, the Ten Commandments. Is there still a function to them? Is there still a... A role. Well, it is a historical record of the will of God, and um, it is a reflection, I think, of His character. And so, we're going to talk a little bit about how how do we use, let's say, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Mosaic Law. Okay. So, there's kind of four principles here. One, you realize that the Mosaic Law is not binding for Christians. Two, you determine the original meaning of the command. Three, you identify the theological significance of the command, right? What does it suggest about the lawgiver and or the relationship between God and man? And then you determine some practical considerations of the Old Testament command. So we look at two commands here, okay? The first one we're going to talk about is lending. This is from Exodus 22:25. If you lend money to one of my people among you, you who is needy, do not be like the, a moneylender, charge him no interest. Do we have any bankers in here? All right, so you can stop sweating right now. But I guess the first command is, are we obligated to keep this command? Like, is it wrong for a Christian to work as a loan officer? What do you think? No, right? Because this is part of the old covenant law. Okay? So this was for the nation of Israel. Two, as far as the point of this law is concerned, it forbids the charging of interest when lending to a poor person, presumably to assist the person who is in a financial crisis in such a way that his recovery will be possible and the repayment will not be overly burdensome. A second purpose is undoubtedly to encourage the individual Israelite to be open-handed and generous and to be sensitive to the needs of the poor and to be ready and willing to help needy people in practical ways, even when it will not result in one's financial gain. Um, so what are some theological insights that might come from this law? What do you guys think? I mean, what, what does this law teach us about the nature of God? How people are to relate to one another. He has compassion for the poor. He has compassion for the poor. Uh huh. He loves a cheerful giver. He loves a cheerful giver. Uh huh. What else? Do you think of, can you think of maybe some applications of these principles? Are we still on identifying the theological implications? Yeah, we're going to kind of bridge to what are some practical considerations. Maybe some ways you can apply it. You know, to look out for our own personal interests. 
Yeah, and I would say this, this would be something to keep in mind too, is like the inflation level in ancient Israel was pretty flat, right? So instead of saying no interest, I think you could say there's a difference between the 20% credit card. Like when people get into credit cards debt, they're in this endless cycle, you're getting 20%. Versus grandma loans, you know, gives you a 1% interest loan on your house, right? That 1% is to cover the cost of inflation, right? They're basically not profiting off of it, right? So I would kind of give, so sometimes we have to kind of keep some of those factors in place that with the reality of inflation, um, the purpose of this law is you don't get rich off of the poor. It doesn't necessarily mean you get poor off of helping the poor. Does that make sense? So there's some flexibility in how you apply this, but low interest loans um, is pretty interesting. He doesn't just say, just give them the money, although you could. There is a place for just giving a loan to help somebody in need out and let them work themselves out of, out of financial problems. Does that make sense? So this, these, you can't bind somebody to this. You have to take some contextual considerations, but, you, but the heart of this command, I think, is pretty clear. Right? And so then you get into, um, let's say, homosexuality. Okay, the law is clearly stated in the Old Testament. Someone want to read Leviticus 18.22? Somebody see that? Ashton, you want to read that for me? Sure. <clears throat> shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Okay. Then you see that this law is repeated in the New. <laughs> So six nine. For do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Mm -hmm. And then Romans one twenty six through twenty seven. Nathan, you want to get that? For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, men abandoned their own natural function, uh, or the natural function of the woman, and mm -hmm. burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Okay. So, theological considerations, there seems to be no clear-cut contextualizing factors in the Old Testament. The sin is contemned across epics, including pre-Mosaic times with the debauchery of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Romans, God provides the reason for the insidiousness of sin as it demonstrates how mankind rejected God's great order. So, with what degree of certainty can we say that homosexuality is contrary to God's will? Right? It's pretty certain. But I'm going to show you another um, way to use the law, too, which I think is helpful. Um, so turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. <clears throat> so the context is Jesus is teaching on divorce and kind of weighing in on an issue. And he, he basically lays up, out his, um, his understanding about when is divorce permissible and remarriage permissible. And he says in uh, 19, eight through nine, 
He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, what's interesting about this is he separates sexual immorality from adultery. They're two different words. Okay? Now, one of the things that people will bring up is that, okay, I believe in the law of Christ, and Jesus never forbid homosexuality. Okay? It's not in the red letters, and I'm a red letter Christian. Um, how would this passage argue against that? Fall under sexual immorality? Yeah, so, and that's kind of the issue. So, what is sexual immorality? Like, he's having this discussion, you know, with these rabbis. He talks about sexual immorality, and they all went, oh, right? Now, clearly, it's different from just this narrow category of adultery, right? So, if you were a Jew reading this, you read sexual immorality, what would come to mind? Homosexuality, adultery, fornication. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and why would those why would those sins come to mind? Because it's what was established in the law. Yeah, yeah. Because you go back to Leviticus nineteen. Well, specifically eighteen. So it's eighteen and the second half of twenty. And you kind of have different forms of incest, bestiality, um, and homosexuality. Does that make sense? So knowing that Jews are hearing this, to say that Jesus, Jesus talks about immorality, sexual morality as a bad thing, one that um, breaks the covenant of marriage, and he is referring to all of these activities in the Old Testament law. Does this make sense? So a lot of times the understanding of the law um, gives you a record and gives you an understanding uh, that helps you apply uh, the fullest sense of the New Testament law set up by Christ. Okay, so we have about 10 minutes for questions. I know this is kind of a lot to kind of think about. Yes? I was just like what you kind of ended on the Sermon on the Mount, use the Old Testament law to, like in this example, like a light, you heard it was said, but then yeah. he turns up the intensity to say, yeah. it's not just adultery that is sin, mm -hmm. it's lust. It's not just mm -hmm. murdering that's wrong, it's this intent. And so there's a, that gives him a context where they all understood the outward expression of, mm -hmm. of what it meant to sin, but he extend that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Yeah. yeah it seems Jesus is looking at the heart. So, mm -hmm. as Christians, he fulfilled the law. He gives us, like you said, the Holy Spirit. He gives us a new heart. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard people say, after, as Christians, 
we fulfill the law. We may not be trying to do that for our own salvation, but as we love him, we follow him, we grow in sanctification, mm -hmm. <coughs> love God first and love our neighbor as ourselves, we're fulfilling the Old Testament Ten Commandments. Yeah. Not, not the ceremonial, but the mm -hmm. law itself, the, yeah. the Ten Commandments God gave on mm -hmm. Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's not abolished, right? It's fulfilled. Fulfilled, right? It's fulfilled. And it remains a historical record of how God sees, let's say, sexual morality. Uh, it remains a historical record of how, what God regards as a human life, worthy of protection. Yeah. Another thing is that, just to plug, right, when we've been reading through Scripture, we're in Acts, and mm -hmm. so you get to really see that worked out as we've just been reading about how Peter had the vision and to go to the Gentiles and then so we're just in that part of Acts where um, the gospel is going to the Gentiles we're going to read soon about the Jerusalem Council and mm -hmm. keeping the law so you can see it worked out through much of the New Testament <coughs> yeah they were working with the same issue the big issue that's addressed all throughout scripture mm -hmm. yeah yeah what would we say to people who argue that the Old Testament condones immoral things like slavery yeah, I think it's what, what is described versus what is prescribed. And slavery in um, the antebellum cell was a clear violation of even Old Testament law. Kidnapping, the treatment of them, um, obviously being race-based and discriminating. Often in the Old Testament, um, slaves were taken because somebody volunteered to go into slavery. They sold themselves into slavery. I think the closest equivalent would be like going into the military, right? You have a young man, doesn't have a place to go, a place to live. Um, going into the military provides him room and board, do him saying and all those things. And so they'd almost sell themselves into service for a five-year tour of duty. Right, so for an Israelite, that's often what happened. They would sell themselves into service um, so that they can have their meetings met by another. Um, but then you get into what do you do with prisoners of war, right? So one option would be to kill them all, uh, putting them in a penitentiary and all the resources for um, a prison um, was just impractical at that time, and so. Is either kill your enemies, lest they rise up and you know take over again, or have them be slaves, um, so that they're still kind of under submission. And so that would be a very different way of doing it. But just to go off and kidnap people and like what they did with Joseph, right? <coughs> you know, just sold off their brother because they didn't like him. I mean, that was seen as a very evil act. Um, but I think the trajectory of Scripture is always to like affirm slaves as brothers, uh, afford them full dignity. You see that in Philemon. Um, that was, I mean, there was kind of like an economic system that was built on slavery. Not that that was condoned. Paul tells um, Christians, if you can avoid selling yourself into slavery, you need to do it. Right. So there was definitely a decided movement. Uh, away from it. And I think you see that by Philemon, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and um, it did serve a different purpose. 
now. But the military would be an equivalent of slavery. And if people think that's wrong, then I mean, okay, but. Or like a colonial times apprenticeship was about the equivalent of slavery. Yeah, indentured servants. Mm -hmm. But it was short term, 70 years, you know, so that the, the biblical prescription of it was always short term. And if somebody wanted to go long term, it was really their choice to do it. No one was forced into it. So when it's prescribed, that's what it is. When it's, and then sometimes it's relegated and you need to afford their humanity. And <coughs> so that's what I would say, <coughs> yeah. In regards to like picking and choosing different laws like you talked about at the beginning, um, and like you had the three different categories that, that you said that wasn't meant in scripture anywhere. Um, if they don't overlap in the New Testament, we don't follow them, correct? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's yeah. essentially how we're picking. Yep, yep. The New Testament has to affirm it. Right. Because we're under the New, new Covenant. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Could you quickly address antinomianism? Oh, the idea that you don't have to keep the law. Mm -hmm. I will try. <laughs> I haven't read my notes on antinomianism. <laughs> so, well, tell me, what, what's your understanding of antinomianism? <laughs> Anti against the law. Uh -huh. The debate from the Middle Ages mm -hmm. back to the first. That Christians aren't obligated to keep the law. Um, well, not obligated to keep the law, that they're free from the law, that it's just grace only, grace mm -hmm. and grace. Yeah, I think uh, there, there's different forms of it. Um, is it true that we're no longer obligated to keep the law um, in the sense that there's nothing that we can do to obligate God to save us, right? We are saved all of grace. And so sometimes I think people take that, well, if I'm saved by grace, then I'm, I can live by grace, which means I can do whatever I want. I mean, and that's kind of the natural extrapolation of, um, of what Paul pushes back. Yeah, Romans 6. And in Romans 6, let's find it. What shall what, we say? Yeah, yeah. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound, right? So the more I sin, the more grace I need and I get, and that's actually a good thing, right? So that's even an implication that people draw from the gospel. And so a lot of people will think that, you know what, um, like you don't have to surrender to Jesus as the Lord. You know, as long as you earnestly convert at one period of time, then how you live is almost inconsequential. And I think that's actually an argument where a lot of people will say that homosexual Christians are saved because they believe at one point in time and how they live afterwards doesn't really matter. But there's warning passages in the New Testament that says if you live a certain way, like drunkards, idolaters, uh, homosexuals, and, and murderers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Like if you live in a sustained pattern of disobedience, you are not saved. Um, we also know that you can't lose your salvation. So the issue is, did they ever have it to begin with? And when somebody is born again, right, they're a new creature, new creation, you have a new heart, and a new heart is detected by what the heart desires and what the heart loves, right? And, and if you love Christ, right, Jesus is not gonna rescue people who hate him, right? He's gonna rescue people who love him, and that's kind of the expression of trust and faith. And if you love me, you will keep my Commandments and what's the chief commandment is to love God, right? Which is to love what He loves, and He loves His people, right? And, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So that's my quick pushback. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're looking for? Okay. 
I mean, I think if you just go through the New Testament only and write down all the commands that are given, you can even just go through Jesus' words and write down all the commands that he gives. Yeah. No one's off the hook. Yeah. I mean, so like, even if you want to write off the Old Testament, which we should not do, yeah. but no one's off the hook. Yeah, like I look at uh, coveting. It's interesting how that's like the featured law where Paul says in Romans 7, I would not know what sin is apart from the law. We wouldn't know what coveting is if that wasn't mentioned. When Jesus confronts a rich young ruler, he goes through all the commandments and then sells all that you have and give, says sell all you have to give to the poor because he identified coveting as your command. When he talks about you've heard that it was said you shall not murder or you shall not commit adultery, um, especially with adultery, he goes after the heart of coveting. And one of the promises of the new covenant is you get a new heart because without that new heart, abstention from coveting is impossible. Right? So the law is not just external. The Tenth Commandment is like this unique feature to it that it has to be internal as well. And that is, um, I mean, that's striking. And so, um, and I think the other thing is when people look at the law like it's a bad thing, like it's restrictive, like the worst thing in the world is to be a legalist. Like, is it legalism to tell somebody you need to love your enemy and forgive those who repent? Right? That's not legalism. That's obedience. And you find somebody who doesn't forgive other people, and they just become hard, bitter, shriveled people. Right? So law is a good thing, and God's laws are not burdensome to his children. It's like, I love the law. <laughs> I don't resent it. I love it because... This is my way of loving, of loving God. And so that's what ethics are. So it's all about how do we honor God in these difficult situations. And so I'm going to talk to Scott about this, but I think we're doing abortion next week. Okay. So. <laughs> Scott, we're on? Yeah. So we're going to introduce a bunch of uh, different topics. Uh, abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality, in vitro fertilization, just suicide in general, Christians in government. And, and the reason why I love this is because this is all about taking the scriptures, right? And what do the scriptures say about these issues? And there's kind of a, a larger training that's going on where we, every decision in your life is governed by the scriptures. And even some of these harder ones that seem a little bit ambiguous, if you look at the scriptures, it gives you clarity on how to live your life and how to please the Lord. And that's really the heart of the commandments. So let me pray, and I'll let you guys go. Well, Father, I do thank you for your law. I thank you for what it teaches us, or how it shapes us, and how it gives us the opportunity to love and serve you. And I pray we'll do just that as we seek to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.